If you would take your Bibles, turn with me to Amos chapter 4. Amos chapter 4, as we continue our walk through the minor prophets in general, and then specifically in the book of Amos. So we've done Hosea, we've done Joel, we are just about um, half, halfway, almost halfway through the book of Amos. Amos chapter 4, the, though there is some disagreement on this, um, I, I think this is a continuation of the sermon that Amos has already been in, so this is still a part of Amos's second sermon, uh, a sermon he is delivering to Israel, so he is probably in a location like Bethel. Uh, so the, 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 the heart of the northern kingdom's seat of power and authority, and here is this uh, farmer off the farm come to town. Uh, God recruiting Amos for this one singular mission to, to go to Israel and, and proclaim His Word. Uh, so chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy. Who say to your husbands, bring wine, let us drink. The Lord God has sworn by His holiness. Behold, the day shall come upon you when He will take you away with fishhooks and your posterity with fishhooks. You will go through broken walls, each one straight ahead of her. You'll be cast into Harmon, says the Lord. Come to Bethel and transgress. At Gilgal, multiply transgressions. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Offer sacrifice of thanksgiving with leaven. Proclaim and announce the freewill offerings. For this you love, you children of Israel, says the Lord God. Also, I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread in all your places, yet you have not returned to me, says the Lord. I also withheld rain from you when there were still three months to the harvest. I made it rain on one city. I withheld rain from another city. One part was rained upon. Where it did not rain, the part withered. So two or three cities wandered to another city to drink water, but they were not satisfied, yet you have not returned to me, says the Lord. I blasted you with blight and mildew when your gardens increased, your vineyards, your fig trees, and your olive trees. The locusts devoured them, yet you have not returned to me, says the Lord. I sent among you a plague after the manner of Egypt. Young men I killed with a sword, along with your captive horses. I made the stench of your camps come up into your nostrils. Yet you have not returned to me, says the Lord. I overthrew some of you. As God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and you were like a firebrand plucked from the burning, yet you have not returned to me, says the Lord. Therefore, thus will I do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. For behold, He who forms mountains 
and creates the wind, who declares to man what his thought is and makes the morning darkness, who treads the high places of the earth, the Lord God of hosts is his name. There are some phrases that we use when we are describing a set of circumstances where we are in the midst of a trial or a difficult time, we come out of that trial and difficult time only to go into something harder and more difficult. Now, there's phrases that we use to describe this. Perhaps the the most evocative and colorful one, well, I went from the frying pan into the fire. Sometimes we might use a phrase something like this, I didn't think it could get any worse until, but but perhaps the, the most common way of saying this would be, things seem to have gone from bad to worse. Again, all all these phrases have the same kind of idea in mind, and that is when circumstances, again, the one we're in is, is difficult, but boy, when we get into the next one, we look back at the first one and almost think, I wish I were back in the first one, that, that what, what was described at first was, was not as intense as what I found myself going through than the second time. There is a sense in which, and this is kind of the thought that rattled around in my head as I was working my way through Amos 4, really chapters 3 and 4, and, and you know, up to this point in chapter 4, we've heard about a lot of Israel's sins, and we've heard a lot about God's judgment. There have been, there's been strong language, pointed language, but then when you read chapter 4, this again, this was the phrase that came to mind. When I got done reading and studying chapter 4, I thought things are about to go from bad to worse. Granted, it's a different maybe set of circumstances, nonetheless, things are going from bad to worse. And I think in, in Israel's case, this, this shows up in a couple of ways. One, in terms of God's judgment, what you thought was a difficult word of judgment in chapter 4 turns out to be far worse than you could have imagined. And at the same time, what we thought to be the sins of Israel described early on in chapters 1 through 3, we get to chapter 4 and we find out, no, it's worse than we thought. Things going from bad to worse. So tonight we turn our attention to Amos chapter 4. And, and just, just as a little textual note here before we even jump into this, you'll see right from the beginning in verse 1, chapter 4 verse 1, the phrase, hear this word. Now I, I bring that up because the Amos's text, his, his sermons, and you know the, the, the book of Amos is, as we've talked about already, is, is a book of compiled sermons. These are sermons the prophet has preached uh, and then has been written down. And these sermons are punctuated with this phrase, hear this word. In, a, in some cases, that phrase indicates a new sermon. And so, like if in most translations, chapter 3, 
uh, opens up and you can tell it's indicating to us, the translators are indicating to us the way chapter 3 is written, that this is a, this is a new sermon that he's given. If you go to chapter 5, most translations will do the same thing, kind of set apart that phrase, hear this word, and it's, it's his way of indicating we, we've, he's, he's put one sermon to bed and he woke up the next day and this is the next one. Now, some do, by the way, break chapter 4 and suggest chapter 4 is a separate sermon altogether. Really, in terms of interpretation, it doesn't, it doesn't influence the way we interpret the text. But I do bring up that phrase, when, that phrase when Amos says, hear this word. He's, he's doing one of two or three things. He, he is, he's, chained, he's giving us a whole new subject, potentially, starting a whole new train of thought. In some cases, um, he is building upon what he said, but maybe going in a new direction. And then, and at the very least, in all of them, it is a way of saying, now, pay attention. Right? Pay attention. It's, it's kind of it's like every now and then, if you're, if you're in an intense conversation with somebody, maybe you're in an intense conversation, some of you would have to think back to this, but with a child, and a parent may say, now, are you listening to me? Now, I never heard that as a child, but I know other kids hear that kind of thing, right? Are you listening to me? So, hear this word. It, it is a way of punctuating what's about to come, to really then, you know, cause the, the listener and or the reader, in our case, uh, to give attention. And for sure, he's taking us in an interesting direction. We're, we're about to get some new information here, S information we've not yet heard, perhaps could have suspected, but this is not something that we've yet heard from Amos about, in particular, the sins of the people. So, looking at Amos chapter 4, and if you've got notes, you'll be able to fill in little blanks. You'll be able to fill in one little blank, all right, and that's as far as we'll get tonight. But in Amos chapter 4, the prophet continued to catalog the depth of Israel's rebellion to further validate the judgment to come. I mean, this is for sure what Amos is doing. He, he gives us this, the, these, these indictments, and this, this comes up again and again and again, various ways of indicting the nation and of, of identifying their sin and rebellion, followed with then God the judge giving the verdict, guilty, and then the rendering the judgment to follow, the consequences that will follow. So chapter 4 just continues that. And... and in terms of the fundamental principle, there's really not a whole lot new. I mean, it is basically this. We, can, we continue to be presented with a God who does judge sin and is righteous and just in doing so. So, so, so the, God's righteousness and justice, justice is on full display in Amos. When we get to Amos chapter 4, I think we see at least three sins which are highlighted, three more ways of indicting them to demonstrate the judgment to come. Now, Amos 4 is interesting, not, not only because it gives us some new information, but when we got to the end, like what we just read, that, then, then Amos concludes this message, which to me really feels like a really, this is a really profound, like, that'll preach kind of conclusion, getting to verses 12 and 13. It's in verse 12 that we get to the most well-known verse in Amos. Prepare to meet. And this is where the King James really provides us with a punch, right? Pre not to prepare to meet your God, prepare to meet thy 
God. There's just something about that that's more ominous to me. Maybe not to you, but there's just something a little more intense about that language. So he does something really profound here, and that, and, you know, that is to identify the, the nature of God as, as a way to conclude this message. Oh, and by the way, that opening phrase in verse 1, I didn't mention this a minute ago, but do want to make this emphatic. Another impact of Amos using the phrase, hear this word, and doing it over and over again, he does it throughout the book. It is a way of bringing back again and again, this is not Amos's word. This is God's word. This is God's declaration. A- Amos is just the prophet. The phrase that I've used, that I stole from John MacArthur, all right, but it would apply here. And that is, Amos is not the chef, he's just the waiter. He doesn't cook the food, but he better deliver it the way it's been prepared. Right? That, so, when it says, hear this word, Amos is identifying, this is divine revelation, this is the direct word of God. Alright, so what are the sins of which they are guilty this time, especially that demonstrate that Israel's kind of gone, that we thought things were bad, well, it's worse than we thought. Number one... We see a pervasive depravity. I think Amos in this chapter and these, these opening verses demonstrates a pervasive, in other words, we're talking societal-wide. The, the, the sins that, that Israel's going to have to pay for, these are not the sins of a few powerful elites in the, at the top echelon of society's, you know, movers and shakers. This is not Israel having to bear the brunt of consequences because God wants to judge a king and some priests and some princes. No, this, this is pervasive. That there, there, there is sin that is, that is seeped into every corner of society. And so notice how he addresses this. Verse 1, again, you want to talk about provocative, keep in mind, Amos is preaching to the powerful people. He has an audience with those powerful leaders, political leaders, religious leaders, and here's the word he speaks to them. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan. Now, just, just to make sure we understand who he's talking about, and this, this is because all of the, the, the key words, like, like the, word, uh, the word cow, is feminine. He is talking to women. We know later the text is going to re- reference then their husbands, right? The verse is going to reference husbands. So what, what is Amos doing? Now he's turning his attention not, not to the men. Now he's talking about the women. And what phrase does he use to identify them? Cows of Bashan. Now you might be thinking, well, pastor, uh, it, it, in a, it's an agricultural society. Uh, is it maybe less offensive in an agricultural society, especially an ancient one so old? Is it less offensive to call a woman a cow? No, no, it's not. No, not at all. As offensive as it would be to you for somebody, ladies, to call you a cow, they thought the exact same way, all right? 
I would even imagine if you're in India with a strict Hindu who believes in the sacredness of animals, I think even those women don't want to be called cows, all right? So if you're thinking, oh, is this really as offensive as it sounds? Yeah. Yes, it is. So just think about how bold this is. This is why the more I've studied Amos, I just think this is a guy that a lot I say a lot of us can identify with, not that I encourage you to go somewhere and call a bunch of women cows, all right? I'm not encouraging you to do that. Do not blame me for when you end up on the news, and I'm not bailing you out, all right? So don't do this. But, that, you know, again, we've got just this good old boy from the country. He's not a, he's, he's not a, a, a vocational prophet. It's not a lifelong prophet. He's not, he, he's not in the know. He's not a guy like Isaiah. Isaiah was prominent knowledgeable, trained, lifelong, ran with the powers that be. I mean, this was a different kind of guy. Amos is not that. Amos is not Isaiah. Amos is just a country boy, tending to sycamore fruit, right? Taking care of some goats. This is who he is. He's in the backwater of nowhere, told to go to the most powerful people. And this is what he does. And this is why you just kind of love the blue collarness of Amos. You cows of Bashan. Now, Bashan, in the language that he's, uh, the, the, the area that he's referencing here, those who are on the mountain of Samaria, th- this was a location known for its, its fertile valleys. Uh, so the, the cows that would have grazed here, had, were, it was good grazing, all right? So the, he's talking about a region that would have been very fertile, and what he's saying is, uh, my, the words of the Lord are not just at the, at the priest or at the king uh, or at the, you know, the wealthy and politically powerful men. There's a bunch of you wealthy and well-to-do women that are functioning like, now maybe pardon me, maybe don't, like fat cows. You're gorging yourself on the fertility of the land. You may, you may say, well, how, okay, so how are they doing that? So Amos is going to then go on and say, notice the next two phrases, who oppress the poor and who crush the needy. In other words, what are they doing? They are grazing on the grass that is being provided by the poor and the needy. This means they are doing the same things that their husbands are doing. They are doing the same thing that the men are doing. They are intentionally going after the weakest and the most vulnerable in order to exploit them for their own benefit. They're doing the oppressing. They're also engaged in in greediness. Stepping on the necks and the backs of those who can do nothing to protect themselves. So, but again, the image is just so provocative that here they are, just just like you know these these just big livestock, just wandering around, eating what they will eat, going through whatever they want to go through, taking whatever they want to take, slowly, lazily, munching however they want to. This, by the way, is another important place where maybe we can drill down. We've done this already in Amos, but this may be helpful to do once again. The, 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 the language of justice, justice versus injustice, this language that's such a hot topic in our culture today. This is another example, though, where we want to identify, so what do we really mean by injustice? Because here's what I think is going on in our day and age. There's a conflation of language First of all, injustice and inequity 
are not necessarily the same things. I'm not saying we should want inequity per se, but why is there inequity in the world? Because we're in the world. This is the nature of things. So there being inequity is not the same thing as there being injustice. Injustice, biblically speaking, what is he, what's he addressing here? He's not suggesting the problem is that there are poor and needy. Again, I'm not saying we should want to, you know, that we should just want the poor and needy to be around. Well, obviously, we want to help. We want to minister and love and serve. That is, is in fact, the point. The, the issue is not that there are the poor and needy. The issue is that those of means are targeting the poor and the needy in order to benefit themselves. And this is abhorrent to God and His law. It's, it's a consistent sin for which Israel is guilty, uh, Judah as well, for that matter. Uh, and, and so, th- this is this is you know what, what Amos is pointing at. Now we even have women doing this. Women are engaging in oppression of the poor and crushing the needy. But then we add another one, and this one's interesting. Who say to your husbands, bring wine, let us drink. So again, another kind of provocative way of saying this, not only are they taking advantage of the weakest and most vulnerable, but they're also calling out to their husbands to bring them the spoils of what they've gotten from the poor and the vulnerable. Bring bring us the wine. If you recall, Amos has talked about this. He's talked about how those who are in positions of power have used their power to gain for themselves uh, wine and, and goods. And, and so, so they're, it's almost like a double sin. They themselves are doing it, and then they're benefiting from their husbands doing the same thing. So bring, bring us the wine. So he's painting a really stark picture here of the sins of the women. Now, here's why this matters, and this is getting then to this point when I say one of the sins of Israel is a pervasive kind of depravity, though the text itself doesn't come out and use this language explicitly, this is regularly, I say regularly, it comes up in a number of places in the Bible where the Bible will identify just how deep the sin is by indicating something like the women are also doing this. This is also something happening among the women. The, the most famous example of this would be Romans chapter 1, where Paul is, is cataloging for us the depravity of man, and, and, and he concludes kind of the, the, the meat of the text by saying, and even the women are given over to unnatural relationships with one another. And that's the way he puts it. And even the women are doing this. Now, perhaps this is what is going through your mind as you hear me say something like this. Well, pastor, come on, aren't women sinners too? Yes. Yes. Of course they are. There's, in regard to the need for salvation, there's no distinction here. Let's also just use our common sense. Is there an equal number of women serial killers and male serial killers? Not even close. Violent criminals? Pedophiles? Bank robbers? Of course not. 
Do you know that right now, of all of the inmates in federal prisons, 93% of them are men. So again, I don't think I have to paint this picture. I mean, I understand this idea, yeah, men and women, we're all, we're all sinners. But there is clearly something, though, ab- about this hope uh, that, that, that I, I don't, I, we're not going to expand on this to any greater degree other than just to say this, there would, there would be this sense of restraint among the women. And what Amos is pointing out here and what other parts of Scripture point out is if it's showing up here, it's a done deal. This is everywhere. It's pervasive. And so then what does God say? Notice how God responds to this. Verse 2, the Lord God has sworn by His holiness. Now, any time you come across in the Bible a story or example or statement that God is going to swear something, that's a really big deal. And we know God does this on a number of occasions, where, where God swears, God makes a, an oath uh, God, God establishes the promise that He's making in, in, a, in a tangible and communicable kind of way. So first, let's, let's think first about the purpose of doing something like this. And let's think about in our circumstances. Why would somebody be expected to swear to something? And the best example would be where? What location? Where does it? Court. Okay. Hand on the Bible. Do you swear Tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. So help you God, right? I do. And so, and by the way, I'm not making a comment on that as a thing, all right? I'm not, I'm, that would be a whole other sermon about the legitimacy of, of all of that. But why, why do that? I mean, other than maybe now it's kind of tradition, but the, the emphasis to say, I'm going to identify of some, something of greater weight and value, and I'm going to say, my promise here is so certain that I'm even willing to risk the reputation of the person or thing I'm swearing by. So it's as, it's as if I'm calling on this to hold me accountable to the, to the promise that I'm making. Informally, kind of, kind of uh, you know, a colloquialism of a sort that we'd use, I swear on my mother's grave, right? We'd use that kind of language. If we use that kind of language, what am I trying to convince you? You can be certain that what I'm saying is the truth, right? Now, we, you know, we get to the New Testament and Jesus has something to say about, you know, let your yes be yes, your no be no. All right, again, that's a whole separate set of things there, but this is why we swear. Now, when it comes, though, to God Himself, well, there's an issue. How does God swear in any way that, because it's not like God is going to place his hand on the Bible, how does the author of the Bible place his quote-unquote hand on the Bible to swear by the Bible, right? God also doesn't have a mother. So, he's, you know, so how, how is God going to communicate this? Well, the Bible, every time God does this, God always swears by himself. Because there's nothing of greater value or depth or weight than God Himself. So who else, what else is God going to swear by? 
but himself. And just so you don't think I'm crazy, Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 and 14, I think I've got a slide for it. For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear an oath by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, indeed, I will greatly bless you and I will greatly multiply you. So going back to the Abrahamic covenant, similar kind of language, by the way, God uses in Genesis 22 after the, um, the, the sacrifice of Isaac and, you know, God stays his hand, provides the ram in the thicket. Um, God then said, God tells Abraham, I swear by myself and reaffirms then the covenant promise that he has made. Now, most of the time when God swears to something, it is in relation to his promises. So God swears as a way to, like in, in Abraham's case, he is swearing as a way to reassure Abraham of the promise that he's made. Which, by the way, is that not a tremendous act of God's grace? Does God have to really swear by anything? Is God obligated to give me any assurances other than because I said so? Right? His word is sufficient, but yet God in His grace did you know, provide this, I swear by myself. Most of the time it's positive. God reaffirming a promise, right? The goodness of what He's about to do for His people. But notice again verse 2, all right? Notice, notice what He says. The Lord God has sworn by His holiness. Now that gives us our first indication, uh-oh. He doesn't just swear by Himself. I mean, it is, it's, a care, you know, it's, a, it's an attribute of God. He swears by His holiness. Well, what could this mean? Well, I can tell you, this means that whatever God is promising here is not an encouraging promise. Oh, it's a promise. God's going to deliver on what He's about to say. But God is, is saying, now I swear by my own holiness. Holiness describing God's own perfect righteousness and purity and otherness and and the fact, and what this is saying is, God by nature cannot and will not lie. So what does he say he's going to do? He says, I swear by my holiness. Behold, the days shall come upon you when he will take you away with fishhooks and your posterity with fishhooks. You will go out through broken walls, each one straight ahead of her, and you will be cast into Harman, says the Lord. By the way, I, I did the best I could in, in kind of the, all, all that I could give to it. Th- that's a mysterious reference. Harmon, Harmon, that is a mysterious reference. Um, that we're not exactly sure what geographical location that is. Context clues, though, would tell you what? It's real bad, okay? That's the formal theological way to sp- say it, all right? It's real bad. Because there's no way that's a good thing, right? Uh, so clearly this is a way of saying I'm going to cast you out. I'm going to cast you into a deserted place. I'm going to cast you into, in, into that place which is alien to where you are now. So this place where they are grazing with such freedom and they are taking advantage just like cows in the summertime lazily just munching on the grass around them, God is going to stick them with fish hooks and yank them out of their their opulence and their greed and their oppression. 
In the language of broken walls, this is a way of describing the, the invading army that will come that will then take them into exile. And you notice the language? He's going to take them one after another. There'll be one in front of another. They're going to, they're going to be marched out of here in a line. Kind of a disturbing element of ancient history, the Assyrians were known for taking their prisoners and sticking hooks in their noses and tying them together one to another with the guy in front leading them with a rope. So it's pretty graphic. Again, Amos, uh, Amos does, not, um, does not resist here. Amos does not hold anything back. This is, uh, you thought it was bad, it got worse. And, and again, what, what I think he is identifying here for us is just how per- pervasive this is. This is everywhere. This, this, God is not holding everybody accountable for the actions of a select few. God is righteous and just in, in judging the entirety of the nation because this, this is something that, again, is, is, is pervasive. And we should just be reminded, you know, what a passage like this reminds us of is this sense of God's holiness. We do well. I think the prophets are such a good balance, especially to the modern evangelical fascination with God's love and grace. And I don't I don't really mean to say that in kind of a snarky way, but maybe a little bit, because their fascination with love and grace has translated into a misunderstanding and misdefinition of God's grace and love, and an overemphasis upon it. We, we would do well to make sure that is balanced again, our, our understanding of God's righteousness and holiness. And you read the minor prophets, and you're going to get a heavy dose of righteousness and holiness. So that is what he does for us. So things do go from bad from bad to worse. God's going to judge His people. All right, next time we'll, we'll move ahead in, verse, in, in the rest of the chapter, looking at, uh, at two other sins that are going to be identified here. Uh, just just as, a, as a bit, if you decide to go home and read this a little bit more, verses 4 and 5 is another example of God using sarcasm. All right, so He's, he's not really encouraging them to go. He, he's he is, he is using a type, a type of sarcasm here to emphasize the, the depth of their sin, which again, we'll, we'll look at next Wednesday night. All right, let's pray together. Father God, we thank you again for the gathering of your people and for this opportunity to be in your word and to be in prayer. Uh, and, and we are grateful for the revelation you have given to us of yourself, of your might, of your power, of your righteousness, of your justice. And even in light of this, Father, how grateful are we uh, to, to know that in Christ that, that we, we escape the wrath to come. We are grateful that, that in Christ, though you as a God will discipline your people, uh, we are grateful to know that we enjoy redemption and the, the promise of eternal blessing. And we thank you, God, that we can be right with you and that you have provided us with all that we need that we might be made right with you. I thank you for these who've come out tonight. What a blessing to be here. I pray your blessing upon these who've come, given of their time, to to be with one another and to pray and to study. May they know your hand upon them, granting wisdom and grace for the days to come. 
so that in all things they would glorify you. Then gather your people back together that we might worship you in spirit and in truth. That's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.